Testing, testing, testing. Good morning in Westfield. Well, actually not in Westfield, wherever we are. Uh, this is Mountainside, I believe. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's Mountainside or we crossed over to Summit, but you know, we're somewhere up there. Okay, it's quite possible. We'll turn <laughs> these levels down. So Lou, are you okay with being recorded on a podcast? Certainly, would like to be, Darren. There goes that liability. This is I Took a Hike. I'm your host, Darren Mass, founder of Business Therapy Group and part-time wilderness philosopher. Here we step out of the boardrooms and home offices and into the great outdoors where the hustle of entrepreneurship meets the rustle of nature. In this episode, we take a trailblazing path with the former EVP and CEO of Foot Locker International, Lou Kimball. Our topics include world jumping career moves, culture clashes, tough executive decisions, and forgiving regrets. I am motivated by a very successful and inspirational executive career when I took a hike with Lou Kimball. This episode is sponsored by Elite Flooring, a leading tri-state flooring and refinishing contractor. Are your floors showing signs of wear and tear as if they've taken a few too many hikes? Elite Flooring specializes in restoring floors to their former glory while prioritizing the environment. Their eco-friendly water-based products have low odor and zero VOC. Visit EliteFloor.com, that's A-L-I-T-E, Floor.com, and discover how they can help you maintain beautiful floors while being mindful of the environment. All right, you are Lou Kimball. What is your story? Where do you come from? We'd like to hear all about you. Um, You and I met on the Retail Advisory Board for our town, where we help retailers to figure out how to attract customers stay in business but we'll come back to that after i want to know all about lou kimball and your past and you came from a very big world well yeah this would be a long story so let's try to let me try to summarize it so uh i grew up in a uh, relatively small town in northeastern pennsylvania so maybe somewhere to the size of westfield uh graduated from high school and actually I had two choices. I could have taken a path in the the late 70s to go on to college like most of my friends did or take a job in the summer uh, and see if that panned out. So I decided to take a job as a management trainee with a retail company Um, and then that panned out to a career of over 40 years. So um, I started off on the sales floor as a full-time salesman became a store manager, uh, became a district manager. Uh, At what company? So I started with Kinney Shoes, actually, which doesn't exist anymore. I was part of the F.W. Woolworth Company. It actually doesn't exist anymore. I remember that store. My mom would take me in there to, to get shoes, and, and uh, I just remember the chaos that was on that sales floor. <laughs> yeah, we were always busy, and actually, to give Kinney's credit, they were one of the first Uh, family shoe stores or shoe stores in the United States that really started to focus on athletic shoes. So we actually had a line of product uh, with the NBA logo on it for in the early days. They did a partnership with the NBA. What year is this? This is back in the late 70s to early 80s. This is before Nike even. Um, So I managed two Kinney shoe stores and then I was approached by our startup division, which at that stage was Foot Locker, who had less than 200 stores across the United States. Uh, and uh, against the advice of all of my mentors within Kinney's who said, this athletic thing's not going to work, why are you going there? Uh, I made the jump and uh, that really became the, the bulk of my career. So I worked uh, again. Wait, so, so I have found that every successful person I know has been told they can't do something. 
And the thing they were told they can't do was the very same thing that made them extremely successful. Yeah, you're, you're right. I think the two, the two tipping point moments in my, I think my whole life, because uh, I could say my business career went to life, was one was I made the move to Foot Locker. And the second one was in the early 90s when I took an assignment, an international assignment, and moved to Europe with my uh, family. Where in Europe? Uh, the Netherlands was the, uh, the base for Foot Locker's uh, European business. Actually, the same base at the, in those days. Well, still is Nike's European headquarters. Uh, was Lucent Technologies back when Lucent Technologies existed. There's a bunch of... Uh, Lucent is, is AT&T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of international companies that all based themselves in the Netherlands based on the Dutch being very pro-business from a tax and, and other uh, issues from that standpoint. So uh, I was going to ask you, why, why the Netherlands? Yeah, but yeah. obviously, uh, money talks. It is less advantageous today because of the, uh, the European Union, but there still is a lot of companies based there. So, uh, you know, uh, yeah, again, going back to the whole career, to career moves from that standpoint. So I moved up uh, from a district supervisor to a um, the VP of operations for Foot Locker Europe. So the guy in charge of the field organization when we moved to Europe in the 90s. And that was really the start of my, let's call it my executive development. So uh, I came back to the U.S. as the VP of operations in charge of Foot Locker, Kids Foot Locker and Foot Action. Uh, and then I went back to Europe in 2004 uh, to lead a, uh, uh, the chairman asked me to go back to look at expanding uh, Europe out of to more countries. So I actually took a role as a head of real estate and store development on that side of things, uh, which was interesting. And then in 2006, I moved to Australia. So I ran our business in Australia and New Zealand for four years uh, and then came back to Europe to run everything outside of uh, North America. So and that's the. So uh, you have been all over the country, yeah, all over the world, and then back. So yeah, you start off managing a small group or working with a small. I always just try to use the word working with, not managing. Working with a small group of people in an individual store, um, up to the point of you're you know you're responsible for uh, twenty five thousand people and, uh, and, and to make sure they're successful. <laughs> twenty five thousand people at Foot Locker. Yeah. So what was the quality that you had that the executive team had had I guess scene that would make them pick you why you well it's yeah it's interesting so we and being part of an athletic company you know i've always yeah been involved in sports at a variety of different levels for my whole life and i and i actually think that's one of the things that uh you know we should probably push our youth to more today but we'll put that to the side for a moment um I, I always had three things um, that uh, are three divining values that I that I used, you know, with working with my teams or understanding the the importance of of uh, you know supporting them or managing them. And, and I mean, some people actually have have a career linked to me for over 20 years, and somebody might have a career linked to me for 12 months. But they would, if you said Luke Kimball, they would say, okay, here's the three things he believes in. So, and those are without getting you know, uh, you know over the top on details. But the three are first one is. Uh, be aggressive, play offense, find ways to win. So being aggressive doesn't mean you need to trample somebody or, or, or be unethical, but you have to, you have to be trying to move your business forward. So and and a lot of, again based on spending so much time in Europe, uh, I use a soccer analogy or a global football analogy to describe that, which is we're not going to put ten people in front of the goal and try to play to a nil-nil draw. We we need to figure out we'll have a strategy, we'll have a plan. We'll take the appropriate amount of risk, 
but you need to win. You need, you need to move forward because as a business, if you're not moving forward, contrary to people's beliefs, you're not going to be able to stand still. You're going to go backwards. You will always go backwards if you take your foot off the accelerator. That's what I know. All right, All right so that's principle that's number one. Yeah, principle number two was uh, excellence and execution. So have a pride in what you're doing and a passion to be the best. It doesn't matter what role you play in the organization, how high or how low. It has to mean something to you. Otherwise, otherwise, why be here? You know, you know, there has to be value in what you're doing, and you have to have a lot of pride in what you're doing uh, from that perspective as well. And again, uh, I, I think no matter how small or how big your business is, if if all parts of the business aren't aligned or aren't executing well, you're just not going to be successful as a group. So nobody's, you know, when you're running a business the size of what Foot Locker International was, or even if you're you know, an individual owner of a retail store, you can't be successful if everybody's not on the same page going in the same direction. So you're defining purpose and pairing that with culture. And essentially you're empowering your employees. You're giving them a drive in, in that one mission statement of yours. And, and, and it's interesting you said it that way, Darren, because the third thing uh, or the third principle is treat each other with dignity and respect. Uh, treat each other fairly with dignity and respect. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking teammates, we could be talking uh, external partners in the business from that standpoint, other companies we're doing business with. You know, you, you need to treat people the way you want to be treated. Ultimately, you're not going to win, you know, by being the bad guy, you know, or, or being the one that's the most disruptive in a relationship. So you, you need to understand where the, where the partnership comes in from a value perspective. So... I would go out on a limb here and say you were a fantastic person to work for. <laughs> I, I, I hope most people thought that. I can't say everybody did, but I hope most people did, yes. Well, you get the sense just from how we opened up that you are absolutely stern and fair, right? But you've got this charisma about you. And if I was an employee of yours, just knowing that I'm working for someone who truly believes in my well-being as well, that helps continue the drive for success, right? Great employees want to work for great managers, great leaders, great inspirational, charismatic CEOs. And it sounds like you were one of them or are one of them. Yeah, I, I, well, I always aspire to be that from that standpoint. You're right there. And, and, uh, and you're right. I mean, if you're, I think most of, in most of the other leaders that I talk to or other, you know, business executives, you know, people in high roles, even in, in, in private life, you know, they all, we all have the same analogy, which is that one of the things that we're, we're, we take the most amount of pride in or, or have the most amount of, uh, believe it's most amount of success in our careers is, is the, the growth we've seen in the people that, that work with us and for us from that standpoint. So the, the, the fact that they they get promoted or they move on with their career or they get bigger challenges and bigger opportunities. Um, I think that's, you know, it's always been one of the most, uh, yeah, one of the most driving factors or, or one of the way I judge myself from a results standpoint. So who are some of your heroes? That's a good question. So during the course of life, I think, you know, you, you have, especially I'm a little older than you, <laughs> you have different people at different times. So, you know, interestingly, one of my heroes uh, from, my, from a sports and a leadership standpoint was Joe Paterno, the coach of Penn State. But unfortunately, you end up with the other part of 
you know, how, how, his, how his life and his career ended from that perspective. So didn't, you know. Yeah, he's, he's certainly not a hero anymore. No, if you read, if you read his book about, you know, um, you know, what he thought was important and what some of the aspirations were, you, you, you definitely have a lot of value from, from that perspective. Um, but again, you know, an interesting, especially in today's world, an interesting scenario where something else comes out on the other end from that standpoint. Um, a lot of, a lot of people I've run into over time, some of them are not as, yeah, well known, if you want to say that from that perspective. So, um, a couple gentlemen that were involved with the European, uh, Union of Sports, uh, you know, were pretty inspirational for me. Uh, actually, a, a recent player, Bjorn Golden, who now runs Adidas, who ran Puma. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, and, and I've learned a lot from him over time um, on some of the things that he thinks are really important from that standpoint or how he runs his business and how he looks at people. Um, you know, some of the guys I've had a chance to work with uh, or for uh, as the chairman because for the last 15 years of my career, I only had one boss, <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was easier from that standpoint. And this was at Foot Locker? Yeah, uh, that would have been, yeah, I would have reported to the chairman and CEO. And that would, uh, Dick Johnson for part of that and Ken Hicks for part of that. Um, you know, we're, we're really, you know, quality guys that, that, you know, that helped me with my career or that I learned a lot from, from that standpoint. Who was the toughest boss that you ever had? Who was the toughest boss that I ever had? Uh, I think the toughest boss I ever had, not necessarily because he wanted to be the toughest, but because of where I was at that particular time, was a gentleman named Tim Finn. He was the president of Foot Locker when I was the VP in charge of the stores organization. Uh, and we had a lot of change and stuff going on at that level. Uh, for the first time, we had a chairman of the company that didn't come from the internal promotion, came from the outside. Ah, so the struggle was, as with any outsider, is that they don't belong here, or why them and not me, perhaps? Well, yeah, the, 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 the upheaval and, and changes they brought in, which you would argue that a lot of them worked, not all of them did, but that created a lot different of a, you know environment of pressure. And I think in Tim's case, you know, um, he he felt it more than others and then he probably wasn't very good at absorbing the pressure and not passing it along <laughs> from that standpoint so but. do you think that's because of his personality or because he felt like he was truly the outsider uh no i think he uh i think it just was the way he managed the situation i mean he tim was actually an internal guy but but his bosses that's his next two three levels up were all external people looking at him going well, you know, is, is this really the right guy? Should he be there? Should I bring in somebody else from the outside to replace him? Because he had a really important job. Foot Locker's always been the largest banner within the corporation. So you're the president of Foot Locker, you're under the most pressure. So, yeah, obviously being an outsider, that's difficult for the people that have worked in the organization as well as the outsider. And sometimes, you know, like you hear those cliches, if you ever go to jail, you got to beat up the first guy that yeah, you yeah. see, right? And that mentality doesn't always work in business. You know, I have found that being a caring outsider and listening to the people that have been there the longest is probably the best approach. 
No, and we've had other, I mean, as, as an, I mean, you could have argued that up until the late 90s, we were too insular, so all the promotions came internally. We didn't look at people from the outside as having enough value, so we were probably were too extreme on one side. Okay. Uh, then we probably swung the pendulum way the other way, and then we figured out somewhere along the way from a balance standpoint. But interestingly, we brought in Ken Hicks as an external chairman, or as an external hire as the chairman and CEO back in 2000 and, and when that have been, 2007 or eight. Uh, and Ken made an immediate impact and, and although he was only with the company for five years, you know, has a lasting effect on the, uh, on the values and the culture within the business from that standpoint. So and I learned a lot from him in the, the five years he was in that role from that standpoint. What was his impact? What made him so successful well, in only five years? He, he understood the athletic industry already, which is always helpful when you come into a new, a new industry from the outside. And that's one of the challenges in today's world where we keep moving CEOs around and thinking that you know, their broad range experience is going to be helpful. When Don't I, you find that to be crazy if you think about that? Yes, I do. This <laughs> happens all too often where a board will bring in a CEO that has zero experience in the industry and expect them to be successful. Yep. I, but it I, never works out. I, I really, I really struggle with a lot of that that's gone on within the last couple of years. Struggle with understanding it. Okay, we hope the person ultimately is successful, but I, I think it doesn't always of, translate. Yeah, I think what a lot of that is is almost the celebrity mentality of today. Is if we bring in this all-star, this famous person, everyone will follow. But that kind of defeats the purpose of of business and the mantra of you have to know your product and be able to hustle. And it's not always a pretty face that will be successful. Case in point, I hate to say it, but Elon Musk, he's not a social media company guy. And look at what's happening with Twitter. Now, lately it appears as if Twitter is going to get some ground back. But if you ask me, Twitter is gravely in danger. Yeah, you see that, and we'll get back to Ken in a minute, but you see that you know, in the last few years, and I don't think it's necessarily a COVID change, as much as it's a, you know, just a reality of the change in the business world. But, you know, you, I, I, I would be concerned as a shareholder that is my board making these type of changes based on um, improving our results, improving that, you know, the, our ability to grow as a business, or are we making these changes to play towards a social media audience to try to get credibility instead of, yeah, instead of looking at it from a business perspective. Because you, you look at some of the people, and, and again, not that they haven't been successful in other, in, in other businesses, but you try to say, wow, that's really a leap going from A to B there. Well, it's, it's happening all too often where the board is falling prey to the same exact, I guess, glitz and glamour that everyday people fall to, is we want to be popular, we want to be liked, and we're hoping that if we're big in the social world, our product and our shareholder value will increase. But as I just said before, it's doing the opposite. And if you look at certain brands that are under attack right now, it's because they were catering to the, you know, what they thought would be the popular trend. And they're digging in their shoes and holding value to their decision. But I can beg to argue that pretty soon boards are going to see massive lawsuits 
for doing the wrong thing, not upholding shareholder value. Yeah, and not under, yeah, yeah. The like trend you doesn't about, always you, work. Yeah, you talked about, and you, you mentioned it before, Darren, you're, if you don't understand the consumer that the business is serving, first and foremost, um, then yeah, you're, you're, you're gonna have, you have to have a longer transition period. And unfortunately, in the speed at which the world moves today, you know, it's not the CEO or the chairman, you, you don't get a couple years to grow into the job. Yeah. You, you need to hit the ground pretty much running. Yeah. So if you don't know the consumer, you don't understand how the, that the consumer you're now trying to serve thinks, you normally need a couple years to get up to speed on what that really means or to, or to have some trial and error. But in today's world, you don't, you don't have that kind of space anymore. You don't get that kind of a runway to kind of, well, take a little time and figure yourself out. So based on that, do you believe that we're too fast-paced today? I think right now, I could say from a, if you're the business looking at the speed that things move, it's too fast because you have, you have too much lost time, lost potential product, emphasis, whatever, as you're trying to figure out where the consumer wants to go. But if you're the consumer who, who today, let's be honest, has an unbelievable amount of information available to them at a moment's click on their phone or on their computer, yeah, then you have to say that's the speed they want to operate in, so you don't have much of a choice. <laughs> uh, but I think, like most things in life, I think it'll, I think it'll st stabilize. No, no different than, you know, you're, you're, if you're a retailer, your e-com penetration went up substantially during COVID. Okay, your stores were closed or partially open. But now it's drifted back. It's already drifted back down to almost a normalized area because, you know, for a lot of retail businesses, the consumer wants to shop. So if you took Foot Locker as an example, who caters to a 16 to 24-year-old, going out to the mall or going out to the downtown high street if you're outside the U.S. or in some cities in the U.S. is a social experience. So, you know, in our lifetimes, there isn't going to be a bunch of 17-year-old guys saying on Friday night, hey, let's go to Mark's house and order online. That's just not going to happen. Uh, no, I'm fairly certain that conversation's a little different. If it's a Friday night, um, maybe some substance was used and some stupid purchases were made on Amazon. <laughs> but no, that party is not going to be happening. Of Let's buy new lawn chairs on a Friday night. Yeah, so I think, yeah, if there's a way to... Yeah, I, I, think, I think business should be challenged to move as fast as the consumer wants to go. Um, and I think in most cases, it'll gradually start to slow down a little bit from that perspective. But I think the, the challenge is more for the business to handle the instant social media pro or con against your business than, than as much on the product or on, the, uh, on your employee side of things from that standpoint. Do you think businesses are fearful? Yeah, I think you operate under this whole different cloud now about is somebody going to have, because let's be honest, unfortunately as humans, we, we talk about the negative, we don't give people enough praise. So the first negative reaction in a store, online, with a third party, partner, whatever it might be, one of your executives does something wrong, God forbid, as soon as that hits social media, that's yeah, it. that's Brand it. over. You're, you're, you're in the back seat. You're trying to, you're, you're playing, you know, you're playing damage control from day one. Uh, and it doesn't matter even if the information is 100% true. 
because it, because unfortunately in social media we operate under the principle of you're guilty until proven innocent so uh, unfortunately i think that's the way the world is yeah. today is we love to be very dismissive we write things off we love to see a train wreck we love to see our heroes fall to humanize them and that's a casualty in business as well as you're right if there's a scandal or even an alleged scandal you are guilty your brand is is going to suffer so and and even see that in yeah we could talk about the town we live in and opinions on different things there as well it's just it, it plays out in every part of life anymore we're very polarized in society and it's very challenging by the way this is in our backyard and this is a good hike yeah it is this is a because a... i've done different loops around here but not the particular one you're following that um, goes through here so you assume i'm following well <laughs> i i do have you're using the app. Your gps <laughs> i do have an app so we don't wind up in some uh backcountry road but no I, I like to go off the beaten trail every once in a while Hey, listener, thanks for hiking along with us. To discover more episodes at itookahike.com or to recommend an adventurous guest, apply to be a sponsor, discover books along the trail, or to simply drop us a line. So let, let's take a rewind a little okay, bit. Sure. Let's go back to your, the height of your career. What was the toughest decision you had to make? Well, yeah, I think there was, a, there, like most people, I think, you know, you got a long career, there's a few of them. So I think, uh, I mean, there was a, several times where you're making a decision on, a, on, a, on an individual that's in a high-level role that you may have been connected to that individual for a long period of time, but you have to realize that at this moment in time, um, they just, they're just not right for the role, and, and the people that, that are counting on that person for leadership, he or she, He's not getting the support you need. Uh, and I think those personal decisions were always uh, some of the toughest for me. I, I didn't, contrary to some other people, I don't shy away from that. You know, actually one of the, one of the things I counsel people on is as a leader or as a manager, whatever, whatever definition you have for yourself, you have to be able to wear the white hat and the black hat. You can't just be one extreme or the other. So in those, those days where you have to make a personnel decision on something like that, those are really tough days. Um, I think some of the other, one of the other biggest decisions we made and was positive when I retired, it's not been positive since then, <laughs> was that uh, we made an acquisition in Europe uh, from Foot Locker Europe's perspective to buy two uh, German retail athletic stores. Uh, and again, not a major thing in the bigger picture of life. I mean. Foot Locker uh, in those days, as would be public knowledge, was an $8 billion company. You're making a purchase for a couple hundred million, so you're not, you're not tipping over the balance sheet or anything. But, Rounding error. But it's, a, but it's a major move because well, until we made that acquisition, we hadn't bought anything in over 15 years. So, so this was definitely what is Foot Locker doing in the world? Your yeah. competitors are taking notice. Are they gearing up to conglomeratize the small, uh, international threat type feelings from your competitors? Makes sense. Yeah, so it was a real... It was a, yeah, a game-changing moment, tipping point moment for, for the board to approve it uh, and for us to execute and, uh, you know, make the transaction happen. So there was a lot of... <laughs> there was a lot... Again, because you're dealing in Europe being six-hour ahead time-wise, it was a lot of 11 o'clock at night till the wee hour of the morning conference conversations with the board from my home in the Netherlands or from where I was, where the, the other business was based in Germany. But, hey, we got it done. So I... Uh, 
interesting story that along the journey that to finalize it, there was a vacation period. So I had my wife and my son with me and we were in a, uh, we had done the, um, you basically rent a little cottage in a farm in the south of England. Oh, you wanted to seclude yourself, yeah, get you were, away from Yeah, the you were there, you know, so you got up every morning, you got a chance to do some chores around the, around the farm, feed the animals or this and that, and you're not that far from the British coast, so we went over there a couple of days. But th the story would be, because of the time difference and where you were in this sunken valley, to have these phone calls I needed to have to finalize this deal, I had to walk up a pretty good size hill, about the same size hill we're on now, pass a bunch of pigs and sheep, so I could stand in the middle of the field and get a signal from my phone to have the conversation. So you were like the movie <laughs> Hangover when Zach Kalpanakis is looking for a cig on his beeper. Yes. <laughs> so, I, so I kept figuring out, so I, I, you know, after the first day of trial and error, I realized, okay, well, I'm walking up to the top of that field every time I need to have that conversation so I can have a conversation. So your, your wife was either very patient and understanding, or you dealt with a little bit of stress. Uh, I think in most cases she was patient and understanding. So I think, uh, and I listened to your uh, some of your other conversations about family and stuff. So yeah, I think at some point our, our partners have had enough of support and, and want want us to focus on uh, on our family more. Uh, but in in those moments when you need to be critical and you need to be there, yeah, my wife was supportive and made sure I could be in the right place at the right time. Well, you know what they say behind the success of a man is a great partner, right? So you need a great partner in your life that supports you. But yes, the common theme with all executives, high-ranking executives, is there is support, right? Because if there isn't, then it ends up very ugly. But there is support, and then it shifts to a little bit of the mentality of, but you're the boss. <laughs> Why can't someone else do it? I think in this situation, though, with an acquisition, your wife had to be very understanding. Yeah. You know, you, you, and, uh, you know, I think one of your, your prefaces before the, the, the conversations was about work-life balance. I actually think the time I spent in Europe, I actually learned more about work-life balance than I did from growing up, especially in my generation, and what the work requirements were as an American working in a company um, that you, you need to realize. And then I, when I actually, even when I came back to the U.S. in the late 90s, I brought back a lot of that idea of, hey, look, you need to have, which was unheard of back in those days, hey, take two weeks off in a row. Two weeks off in a row, what do you, hey, my brain can't do that. Yeah, I need two weeks hey, just you, to get used you, to that. You need, you need a chance, you need the first week just to, de just to decompress, and then the second week you can actually have a vacation. Yeah. So, or, you know, or, and also, hey, look, we could bring people in from the outside and integrate them and they could be successful. But, uh, so I think that, that yeah, that balance is, is important to understand, you know, what's, what also is important beside work, you know, from that perspective. And I actually think the Dutch do a really good job of managing that. They're very efficient, um, um, high level in engineering and some other things. And, but yet they, you know, they get their five weeks vacation and they're taking their five weeks vacation. That's right. So, so was there ever a country that you were going to go to where your wife said, oh, honey, no, no, I don't want to go there. Uh, I don't think it was, I don't think I've ever really been in harm's way when I've been there, but we've had, you've had moments. So for example, we opened in Turkey. We've had stores there for a couple of years and actually- That's a tough place to live by the way, I, as an American. Yeah. So we never lived there, but I had been there. I had actually been there the previous week 
when there was the attempted coup the next week. So you're sitting, and again awesome. now I have I have people working for us in going going. So we're trying to figure out the non-Turkish people. Do we have to get them out? How do we get them out? Yeah. Or you know what are we trying to do during our whole situation? But I literally was there. So I've had I've had situations where fortunately for me, knock on wood here, I'll use the tree. That is a tree. Yeah, it I, counts. That I've that I've just missed being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, that's uh, that's nail biting and nerve wracking. Speaking of which, let's be careful on this descent. Here. Yeah, what are that what are that wrong place at the wrong time is Manhattan with uh, the bomb that went off underneath the Marriott or 9-11 because I was in New York on 9-11. Were you near that bomb? Uh, our office at that point was the Woolworth building which was right around the corner and that where the bomb went off in the building, the platform that was destroyed was the platform that the path train that I would have come in on every day from from Newark would have come in there. Oh wow, talk about a close call. Yeah, but the yeah, fortunately the bomb went off after rush hour. Well, I was always an early guy getting to work anyway, but um, so that was good. And same thing with 9-11. So we were uh, in our office on 34th Street the day 9-11 happened. So, and the panic there was that the Empire State Building was gonna be targeted at the same time, which is a block down the road. Oh my God. <laughs> so our office was right across the street from Macy's. So you, uh, you are obviously unscathed, but those were yeah. horrendous times to be a New Yorker and quite honestly for America. Yep. But so. By the way, very, uh, very good navigating a downhill that could have taken us out. Yeah, like I told you, I, you know, back in my younger, much younger days, I, you know, that was a time actually when retail wasn't even open on Sundays. You could plan to do different things. I spent a lot of time, and I was living in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, so I, we spent a lot of time on the Appalachian Trail, both in Pennsylvania, Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia. That would be a typical Sunday morning drive somewhere, get out of the car, hike for three, four hours, get back in the car and go home. Well, so the whole premise of this show is really finding yourself in nature, the work-life balance, as we talked about, relevancy, because what you find is more often than not, people get so engorged and engulfed in work that they forget to be relevant in their personal life. And walking around in nature, there's something grounding about this. There's also a very honest approach that you're looking down, you're trying not to trip and stumble, so this conversation is real and raw and not guarded, which is very interesting and, and I guess exciting because this is who you are. This is the real information that you're giving. So I want to take a step back to something you said, which is really important. Your toughest decisions were around terminating employment, but you wanted to be the white hat and the black hat and be present. And that's something that I coach my clients on, is that you can't run from a tough decision. Exactly. It sucks to fire someone. Salespeople, if they don't make their number, they know they're at risk, but someone still has to do the termination, and that is hard, especially when you know someone has a family. But if it is not coming from the person who has the most to gain and lose, the manager, the boss, the CEO of a small company, then it's not authentic, it's not real, and it won't help that leader grow. And in a very weird way, terminating an employee, having that tough conversation, really does help you grow as a leader. It does not make you a bad person, and hopefully you made a wise decision, but it helps you make better, clearer, more tough decisions later on. So you have to go through that, and you can't run 
from your fears. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, you're exactly right. And you, you see different different people in different parts of their career. The first time they have to do something that's a tough decision versus how they make that decision later. And and again, you also I've also always cautioned people not to make that, especially a personnel decision, lightly. You really need to think about what you're doing, why you're doing it. Um, and ultimately, especially if it's a manager level role, you know your 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 concern or your valuation is more on the group of people counting on that particular manager or that particular leader to help them be successful. Uh, and you can't jeopardize the team for an individual person from that standpoint. But you really, like you said, you need to take a take a long time and look about. It. I I would. I would literally spend a lot of time staring in the mirror, thinking about what I what I was going to do or what I had to do before I ever did it. Well, that's you know, that's daunting. But you ultimately made the right decisions, right? Even our bad decisions can turn positive. But if if you didn't have a well thought out approach and you terminated someone the wrong way or made a bad decision, that has a lasting effect, especially reputational. And as we know today, your reputation is everything. It takes forever. To, to win a good reputation takes an instant to remove it, to destroy it, especially in today's culture. So what was the worst decision you ever made? One that haunts you. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, let's, let's think about that for a second on which one. Which, what, I have to ask the tough questions because yeah, you're yeah, a human yeah. being, regardless of, of how high your position was and how successful your career was, you're still a human being. Yep. Yeah, we all we all unfortunately have made uh, poor calls along the way as well too, from that standpoint. So I think, yeah, I think probably my the decisions or the the the, the situations I'd like to pull back is sometime in a uh, sitting around the table making management decisions not being as open-minded as I should have been. And, you know, in one particular situation, I had a, uh, a head of my marketing area that I probably didn't give enough value to his opinion outside his core competency. Uh, and I probably was far, in fact, I know I was, I was far too aggressive in that, in the general setting where as a group, we're trying to make a strategic decision or to plan a strategy out. Uh, and at the end of the day, he was right. So and Did you which, tell him he was right? Yes. I made sure in the same forum <laughs> that, I, that I told him that, uh, yeah, you were right, I was wrong, and it was my mistake, and I won't make it again. Did he appreciate at least that mention? Yes. And, and he, he, again, he was, it wasn't like one of those things where you can honestly say it was cut and dry, it was A or B, you know, type of thing. So It was a tough decision. He understood that. But, uh, and you took, again, you I took think, the fork in the road, and, and you, you fell on, would you say it was your ego that you fell on, your judgment? Yeah, it was my, I think it was my judgment more than my ego. At least I hope it was my judgment more than my ego. And again, like I said, I just think that there were, there were people in the room that had another opinion. And for the and probably and in that situation, I would say for the wrong reason, I valued the other pyramid head's opinion on that decision more than I did his. Uh, but I would also say that was a, a a significant changing moment in my life because if you'd worked for me ten years after that in a similar role, you'd have said, "Wow, he really gives the marketing team a lot of support and a lot of emphasis and a lot of uh, leeway to." to guide things, because I learned from that. You know, I was probably too, uh, you know, stereotypical in my, what I thought the role, 
you know, would be or what that particular leader would be able to deliver versus the, the broader picture. So, okay. And that leader stayed on and, uh, actually eventually, eventually he, I promoted him to run one of our divisions in Europe. Well, there you go. So it all works out. Yeah. So obviously I naturally have to ask you what was the best decision you ever made in your, I'm going to keep it to career because we all know it was marrying your wife, right? That's your typical response. Sorry, Safe. Yeah. What was the best decision you ever made, or at least one of them? Well, I would say, to me, it's easy, one decision. The best decision I ever made was to, was to decide to go to Europe in 1992 and move over there and live there for a few years. Because it, it changed my, my entire approach to leadership and, and my understanding of uh, how to work with people and how to help them be successful. Because at the time I went over, we were, I had gone on an exchange program for a couple of years where I would be there for a month or so and come back. There was a group of five of us that were basically trying to teach the companies we acquired in the, um, that time frame in the early 90s to be footlockerized, if you want to use that expression from that standpoint. So, but when you make the move over there, you, you know, everything changes. So you, like as a U.S., we realize there is a difference between people who grow up from a culture standpoint education and everything else if you grew up in the Northeast or you grew up in Florida or Texas or Detroit or California. But at the end of the day, there's probably still more similarities than we want to admit. But in Europe at that point, we had stores in eight different countries and talking to a Brit versus talking to a Dutch person versus trying to get a French guy to do what you needed him to do or an Italian to understand what's going on or, or make sure you're partnering well with the Spanish took me to a whole different level from a cultural understanding and a, and a management style and a, and a aspiration to be successful across a very dynamic and changing environment. Because this is long before the EU, so every country is operating with a different set of labor laws, every country is operating with a different sense of rules of the road, if you want to say that from that perspective. So, so you have um, to learn to navigate everything. It actually puts you in a situation where you probably had some fear, uncertainty, and oh yeah, of your own, right? Are you going to be a good leader? You were successful, much like a CEO that's brought in from the outside. You were a foreigner. Yep, I was. I was the American that got dropped in to supervise all the locals. So is it fair <laughs> to say they didn't like you? Uh, some of them, yeah, I would say some of them were. Were it was obvious. You know, hey, look, I don't like you. <laughs> uh, I mean, if I and know anything those, about the Dutch culture, they will tell you they don't like yeah, you. Yeah, and some of them were less, were more subtle about it, but you realize, and, uh, you know, as a retailer, one of, the, one of your greatest um, challenges is you, you have to be able to get people to execute your vision, your strategy, your plan when you can't see and touch them. You know, they're in locations all over, and, you know, whether it's, you know, all over the country, all over the city, all over the continent in this case. So if, you, if you're trying to say we're deploying this plan or this strategy because we expect these results to happen, and then you want to measure the results, you have to have confidence that, that the plan was executed. And, and you're not going to drive, you know, it's not like you're going to get pictures from 200 stores or 500 stores saying, yeah, we really did it. See? No, you have to trust your people. If you don't trust your people, you micromanage, and nobody responds well to a micromanager. So then, like I said, for me, from a growth perspective, it took me to a whole different level to understand, um, first of all, how to earn their respect, uh, because that's what you need to be able to do. I, I always think when you step into a new role, it's, you don't get, you know, you, you may get authority, 
because okay you're the boss if you want to say it no matter what size of the business but you have to earn people's respect if you really want to be successful well true authority is earned and it's not by title right there have been many instances where people will just essentially quit they're they're working while they quit right they're silently quitting yep. because of a bad or shitty boss yeah they just stop yeah, yeah, they just they they punch you know they punched out even though they're getting a paycheck. Still. Exactly, that unfortunately is is a common theme all too often today post COVID, and hopefully that will start coming to a head. Yeah, but and so back to your point, and I've in fact actually I just was talking with a, a, a college uh, sophomore that I know that uh, been part of my fa my family you know or extended family if you want to call it in Westfield. Uh, and he's thinking about different things he would do. And I said, you know, I told him, I said, I think if you could do a semester abroad, I think you'd learn a lot. If you ever get an opportunity to work overseas for a period of time, I think you'll learn a lot. Uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's, and it's always, and it's also interesting as an American to live in a situation where you're the minority. Where you're uncomfortable. Yes, because you're not, the, you're not the local. You don't speak the language. You don't necessarily understand everything. So, yeah. Yeah. I've done a lot of traveling abroad, and it's true. When you immerse yourself where that fat American ego of we are the best, we are the only single source dissipates immediately when you're out of your comfort zone. If you want to grow as a stronger person, throw yourself in an immersive experience in someone else's culture and be the outsider, be the minority, and you will learn quickly. You either overcome or you don't. So let's full circle this. During your career, did you have a, what you would believe is a positive work-life balance? Uh, I think so. So I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll explain that in a second, but then I'll also explain something I learned unfortunately or fortunately too late because it happened during COVID. So I think I had a work-life balance because I always was involved with my sons, my two older sons or my, my current uh, seventh grader. You were always present. So. I coached them in sports. I tried to be there most of the time when there was something going on in school from that perspective. I mean, I mean there's always something that can happen during the middle of an afternoon and you're not there, but... Uh, but but I, if you I canceled, always... it wasn't, uh, oh, there's dad again, not showing up. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I, I coached, uh, yeah, youth soccer, basketball, baseball. I've run, run programs. I'm on the board of the Westfield Soccer Association now. So I've always tried to make sure I, you know, say, hey, Instead of going golfing for five hours on Saturday, I'm going to spend the time with my son uh, and, you know, and be part of his life and the things that he thinks are important from that standpoint. Um, the thing I learned in COVID, which I wish I had learned beforehand, was that I was never convinced that I could be productive working a day or two from home. I always felt like you needed to be the first one in the office and you need to be, I didn't necessarily feel I needed to be the last one out, but I always wanted to be there early, be set up, be ready for as people showed up for work if I, you know, needed to, you know, support them in any way or do something. But I realized, as Exhibit said, the first to clock in, the last to leave mentality, which is, you know, if I may, an older work yeah, yeah, mentality. Yeah, yeah, it's an old, it's an old mentality. It's a technology-based mentality. But again, I was always, and it's interesting from a dynamic side, but I was one of the first guys to carry a cell phone. I was one of the first guys to have a laptop. I can imagine whole, the cell phone. Business. Was it the Zach Morris brick or was it the flip phone? Nah, it was a flip phone. Okay, the Motorola? The Razor, yep. You know, All right. So, uh, but you know, so, so, but what COVID taught me was, hey, I could really, I could really work from home 
and I could still be in touch with my people because of you know, we're on Foot Locker's in, in a Microsoft environment, so via Teams, uh, or outside the Foot Locker environment in Zoom. So I realized that wow, I could I could probably have been doing this more often, where I could have said, you know, not necessarily every week, but I could have said, hey, I could work from home from Friday, and I won't feel guilty about being at home, and I could still support people and still be part of things. But yeah, it was All right, too so, late. <laughs> so so. Is that a little bit of a regret that you could have yes. worked from? Okay, so I'm yes. going to change your regret and hopefully vanish that from your thought process. The work from home world that we experience today, that perfect ideal or that seemingly perfect ideal environment didn't exist until the pandemic. It didn't. Zoom was ushered into the forefront. It made things very possible. It made it possible to sit on your couch and your coffee table and be a worker. That was not possible um, prior to Zoom. And I'm not saying completely, yes, there was WebEx and Citrix and all these other services you could use. But prior to that, the adoption for communications or group communications was a conference call. Yep. Now, growing up in the 80s, working in the 90s and 2000s, Conference calls were great, but not conducive to a completely remote or an every once in a while remote strategy for the majority of your employees. Seeing someone face to face, albeit over a computer, is far more conducive to successful working engagements than just a phone call. So hopefully that alleviates some of that regret because I'm with you. I don't love the completely entirely remote world. I think small businesses have greatly suffered. You suffer from creativity, that, that group huddle, that pop-in in the office. We see so much productivity go down. And yes, there are those that take advantage, right? They're not actually working, but they're sitting on camera pretending to work, right? They're still wearing their pajama pants and a business shirt. But for the majority of people, we've lost touch of face-to-face in-person and creativity. And that is part of the reason why the economy is suffering today. Largest business segment of the economy and the small businesses are suffering from creativity loss. I would agree with you 100%. I think the, you know, we, we've, we should have significantly before today moved more businesses to some type of hybrid model that makes sense for that individual business. And for some businesses that might mean four days a week in the office and one day at home. For some businesses it might be every day in the office except three times a month. You know, it varies depending on what you are. But you're right. You're losing you're losing a, your culture as an organization. You're losing the the ability to bring someone new into your business and have them really be embrace and understand what the business stands for if the entire relationship is over zoom or over a video screen oh especially if you or you by just themselves sitting in their if, house yeah. if you just hire someone their first day in the company is hey let's hop on a zoom call there is no culture that they're going to identify with and they're certainly not going to beat to that same drum unfortunately we do live in a world where the employee has the power. And I don't mean that as unfortunately like, you know, boohoo, bad for employers, these big, fat, dumb, rich uh, business owners. No, I mean, unfortunately, because it hurts their career too. The inspiration to move up the ladder 
if you're an A player, has been diminished. You get drive from wanting to succeed, to be part of that team, to stand out, that you can't have from your couch, right? You're doing your work, yes, because if you're not, hopefully you're not there anymore, but you're not getting pushed by your peers the same way. You're and not it's learning, stunting the employee. Yeah, you're not learning from the group that sits around you that helps you, that right? motivates you, that you interact with on a regular basis. You know, you're not, you know, I think we're human beings. We're not, you're not going to learn everything from what, we're social you, animals. What, what you Google search today for, for whatever reason. That's so. right. And you're losing that pressure to be better, to improve, to climb up the ladder, to impress. You're losing that face-to-face -face connection. Again, we're social animals. We need to have that, that connection, that bond in order to feel good about ourselves. And I think the next pandemic is going to be extreme depression from the youth that started working post-pandemic. I agree. So moving forward, life after career, I'm going to make an assumption. I know it's dangerous, but you probably have a good work-life balance. In fact, it's probably a little more life-work balance than ever before. Yes, you, are, you would be 100% correct that there's more life than there is work at this stage. So I pick and choose the projects I want to do at this stage. Have you annoyed your wife? Has she told you you're annoying her go back to work yet? Uh, no, but she, would, she just would prefer that I stay busy. Let's put it that way yes. from that standpoint. So. I, I find that with highly successful, motivated individuals, retired or not, that is a common theme. You end up driving your significant partner crazy because you can't turn it off. Yeah, you go through that transition period where they're trying to figure out why you're here so often. <laughs> Aren't you supposed to be traveling somewhere? Shouldn't you be on a plane going to Hong Kong or Singapore or back to Europe? No, that's, I don't have so to do that The thing they wanted most is not real. <laughs> so it's a balance. It's a balance. Yeah. So what would you say your definition of success is? Uh, I, think, I think you have to... As an individual, I think you have to define that. I think, I think every one of us has our own KPIs. So, you know, we, we, you know, for some people, the most important thing of success is financial. You know, I make X amount of money or I can live a certain way. Um, other people, it's career inspired from that standpoint. Uh, for me, it's, for me, my personal definition is, is, has been, for my life, has tried to be a balance between I certainly wanted to achieve certain things in my career. I wanted to be able to, uh, for the business that I was involved with to be successful, and more importantly, the people that were working with me to be successful. But at the same time, I always wanted everybody within my family, my brothers, my sister, my sons, you know, nieces, nephews, whatever, to realize that if they needed me, I would be there for them. That's um, a powerful message. And I do agree that Success is personal, although sometimes we kind of get manipulated by what we believe success is, which is tied to money, right? And, uh, you know, I can tell you at some point, money doesn't buy taste or class, right? And the grass is always greener. So your success measure has to be around something that's intrinsically personal. I'm getting followed by a bee. Hello, bee. Yeah. Yeah, and I counsel my, uh, my two older sons who are both uh, in their 30s and working that, you know, that, that same thing because a lot of times, especially in their generation, there's always this, this, this well, it, whether it's an aspiration or a goal for financial gain or whatever. And, of course, you're always going to get more money 
when you go from one company to another. Otherwise, why are you going to go? Well, but your some, biggest raise point, is your starting salary. Yeah. At some if point, you're smart. That's, yes. At some point, though, the grass isn't always greener somewhere else. And I always tell them, you have to enjoy what you're doing as well. So at some point, you need the balance between where you, where you think you want to be career-wise and financially and how both of those affect your family from that standpoint because they get affected more than what we want to admit sometimes based on the decisions the whoever's guiding the careers it could be the the husband it could be the the wife or it could be you know two partners that are one's leading and the other one's following so but eventually whoever's pushing the agenda has to realize what the effect is on the other half that's absolutely right is well especially when you are together or married it's not just about you and when you have kids you know, I, I realized this very quickly, it's no longer about me, yeah. right? Which is why I made the decision when I sold the company in 2018, had my third child, I didn't start another company right away. I enjoyed being a father, right? It's the thing that you hear most played out, that common theme that, you know, on your deathbed, no one says, I wish I made more money. They say, I wish I spent more time in my kid's life. So that to me is wrapped in success as well, being present. So are there any topics that you think would be very advantageous for an aspiring entrepreneur to understand? Well, I, I would say for an entrepreneur or someone running a business, the only other, the, the other thing that I think is really important is that um, I think although you know, we've talked about leadership, we've talked about making good decisions and bad decisions, we've talked about the role you have to play and the, you know, whether you're willing to wear the white hat and the black hat and all that along the way from that perspective. But, the one thing you have to caution yourself from is to not make all the decisions, to make sure your people feel empowered. So for most of my, yeah, I'll call it executive life the last 15 years, whether it was in Australia or Europe or New York City, if you were going to walk into my office, you had to walk across a floor mat that said, and your solution is. So come to me with solutions, yeah. not problems. Because the reality is, again, you certainly could have come with a problem. We certainly would have worked out together. But you, you don't want to be positioned as the one making all the decisions. Otherwise, your people just don't grow. I mean, like you said earlier, you learn from your mistakes. You grow from your mistakes. You obviously don't want to make a mistake that's going to jeopardize the business or thousands of people's lives, or careers rather. But at the same time, you, you need to know you need to make the decision. You know, I'm not your get out of jail free card all the time. So, I'm not your crutch. Oh, Lou told me I could go to, no. So then that was the constant reminder of, okay, when I go in there, I'm going to need to have a solution or a recommendation of what I want to do because he's not going to make the decision for me. I think that's a very powerful message for a small business owner yep. because more often than not, a small business owner thinks that they always have to have the answers. And the reality is if you want your people to improve and stop just throwing problems at you, tell them to reverse, come with a solution. I would practice that. It took me probably six, maybe seven years in business to realize that, right? As an engineer-minded individual, someone would come to me with a problem, I'd have to solve it, call that ego. I wanted to be the problem solver. I wanted to seem strong or appear strong. Until I learned, and it took a business consultant of my own to say, stop answering the problem for your people. Tell them to come to you with solutions. So going forward from that point, anytime someone came in with a problem, I said, what is the solution? If they didn't know, okay, not trying to be mean, go back out, discuss it with your peers, come back with a solution. And even if it's wrong, at least you attempted it. 
great. I saw my employees rise to the occasion more often than not. It was a moment of pride. So yeah, they realize you, uh, you trust them, you, have, uh, you, know, you value what they're adding you know, to the business from that perspective. And they also take on you know, you know, ownership you know, from, the, from that standpoint. Accountability. So, yeah. Yeah. Trust is one of the most important gifts you can give to an employee. Trust keeps an employee motivated. Trust keeps an employee wanting to come back and work harder and wanting to impress the customer. You being the customer, we are each other's customers. Trust is the best approach to running a great culture. And it's empowering. And then every once in a while, you have to feed an answer here or there, but that's also okay too. Just like a good parent, right? You want, you're teaching your kid to ride a bike, right? You push them a few times, you give them training wheels, they build the trust that way, but then you finally just say, okay, you're off. You gotta go. And when you fall, I'll be there to pick you up. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Great day for a hike. So, Lou Kimball, while most people went to work today, we went to hustle. Right. Would you like to add anything else into the show? No, I appreciate the opportunity. It was a great conversation. And uh, I have to tell you, Darren, I learned a lot listening to you as much as I hope I'm helping your audience from that standpoint. Absolutely, and feeling is mutual. Next time on I Took a Hike, we take a performative stride with a true giant in performance coaching, Evan Marks. I trained with a girl named Denise Schull who actually, I don't know if you've ever seen Billions, they portrayed her in that. And what we actually did. Wendy Rhodes? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And she was my coach for a while when I was on Wall Street. Yeah, so I started, I was on Wall Street for managing money for 25 plus years. And I always wanted a coach. And she came to me out of nowhere and I kind of slow played her. I, wanted, I didn't want to let her know that I was interested in coaching. But we just had a good conversation, and before you know it, she's like, do you want to join me? It was perfect timing. Perfect. Timing is everything. Everything. So I said, I'm in. She goes, sweet. She goes, you got to go back to school. I go, what? <laughs> About six months in, she's like, are you ready? I said, what do you mean I'm ready? I said, I'm not ready yet. I still haven't sold my partnership. This, that. She goes, well, you better be ready because we're moving. I said, where are we going? She goes, we're going to coach Hendrick Motorsports. You're going to be coaching Jimmy Johnson and his pit crew team. Oh, what a hike it was. Till next time, I'm Darren Mass. Thanks for listening.